What is holiness? It's one of those words that gets batted around a lot, doesn't it? You sort of think of monks in monasteries or people in strange clothing or all those sorts of things. But holy in its most basic sense means to be set apart for your God. It could be applied to places, to mountains, to food, to drink and even furniture as we've been seeing in the book of Leviticus. But it's also applied to people in the Bible. People set apart for service to their God. Sometimes even in the Bible it's it's uh, translated dedicated to. Someone dedicated to their God. But have you ever thought, if holiness is being set apart for service to your God, then holiness very much depends on what your God is like. If your God was loving and merciful like the God of the Bible... Holiness would be to do with love and mercy, wouldn't it? But what if your God was nasty and corrupt and sexually immoral? What would holiness look like then? In other words, what would holiness look like to, say, the Canaanites, who lived in the land where the Israelites were going, or the Egyptians in the land that they'd come from? In this passage, we get a glimpse not only of holiness for the Israelites, but holiness for the land that they were coming from, And the land they were going to. The key section really in our whole uh, talk this morning is 18 verses 1 to 5. Have a look at them with me. 18 verses 1 to 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not, uh, sorry, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see, this whole section, 18 to 20, is rules about how their holiness was to be different from the world around them. Do not be like them, as a sort of theme, is revisited five times in our passage and sort of forms a refrain, a chorus, if you like, to the rest of the laws. You can see it from our reading earlier that holiness as well covered all areas of life. Not what you, just what you do on a Sunday or indeed a Saturday for them, but everything, day to day. Now you can also see from, probably from the reading before, a quick glance Uh, that some of those laws can seem quite strange and wacky. So to help us this morning, I've got some questions that we can ask of any law in the Bible, wacky or not, and help us understand what it means. We're going to look at one example from each section this morning. I'll briefly comment on the others, otherwise we'll be here till the end of Victorian Fair. But I want you to go away with some rules that you can apply, some ways that you can understand what you're reading. And really, this is a lifetime's work, if you think about it, as we go through the Bible, as we look at what it says, and try and understand the implications for us now. So our first point is, don't be like them in society. That's uh, the middle section uh, of our passage. Don't be like them, God says in verses 1 and 2. Be holy, for I am holy. See, if you think about it, this section really, it it covers holiness. We're moving on now from cleanness and uncleanness, which we looked at earlier on in Leviticus, into holiness and unholiness. 
Be holy, for I am holy, says God. You are to be set apart, distinctive, just as I am. And they're to be distinctive in society. That's really what goes on. This section is not so controversial as some of the other sections we'll look at this morning. But it is quite confusing at points. All ten commandments, interestingly, are alluded to or repeated in some form in this section. And we can sort of understand a bit of it. So verses 3, 4 and 5, you get the fifth commandment, the fourth commandment and the second commandment respectively. But then all out of the blue, suddenly in verse 6, it starts talking about the peace offering. Where did that come from? Well, let's have a look at that in more detail. I'm covering this one because someone specifically asked me to have a look at the peace offering uh, again. But uh, verses uh, 5 to 8 cover a peace offering. Now, to help us work this through, um, I've got an acronym that spells wacky. Okay? Or if if you're slightly different at the end, it spells wacko, but it's the same idea. But it'll help you understand. If you think this law sounds wacky, work through this, okay? So the first thing we need to look at... Uh, in this, let me read the verse first actually first thing we need to look at is the wording, what does it actually say um, so verse, uh, yeah, verses 5 to 8 when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord you shall offer it so that you may be accepted it shall be eaten the same day you offer it on the de- or on the day after and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire if it is eaten at all on the third day it is, it is tainted It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So what's the wording, the W of wacky? Well, you must eat the peace offering on the day it's sacrificed, or the day after, but not any later. That's basically what it's saying. On the third day, the peace offering that you take home with you becomes off-limits. If it's eaten on the third day, the sacrifice becomes null and void, and those who eat it are guilty of sin. They've profaned what is holy, that is the sacrifice, and must be sent away from the people. The commandment is actually to do, though, if you think about it really, when you are to eat the peace offering. The rest of the passage is to do with the punishment of if that command is broken. So that's the wording. It's literally saying, you must eat it on day one or day two, not day three or beyond. The A, so we've got W for wacky, A, what's around the passage? Well, the big context we've just seen is do not be like them. In some way, the peoples of Egypt and Canaan did not do what this commandment was asking. Now, peace offerings were not unique to the Israelites. The term was used for any offering followed by a meal. We can infer from that, though, that these rules were not followed by the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Perhaps a peace offering was eaten for longer. After all, you had to sacrifice a whole cow or a whole sheep or a whole goat. Imagine that would take quite a while for a family to eat, even if you're quite a big family. But the even larger context gives us pause for thought, too. This isn't the first time we've met this commandment. You might remember it from another week. It's actually a repeat of a commandment in Leviticus chapter 7. The command has actually already appeared in the sacrificial section of the book. So why have they put it here now? The smaller context, though, is the, is the surrounding commands and the section. And they're really key to understanding it. They're mostly to do with loving your neighbour. 
In fact, it's all summed up there in verse 18. Uh, If you go down to verse 18 uh, of chapter 19, that's got a very weird verse. Um, uh, But you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbour as yourself. And that's really the centre point of this section. We need to grapple with how eating food in a shorter time span was loving your neighbour. Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But we touched on this in the sacrificial section. But here we have greater grounds for what we said. The command has not so much to do with fellowship offerings, but the fellowship itself. The smaller your group that eat that sacrifice, the longer it takes to eat. So think about it this year. The the fewer people, the the more people you have around for Christmas dinner, this Christmas, the fewer leftovers you're going to have if you get the same size turkey. Yeah? If you want to get through an ox or a sheep or a goat in just a day or two without having goat for breakfast, goat for lunch, goat for tea, then you need to have people over, don't you? You need to share it with people around you. It was actually a command to encourage hospitality, to encourage fellowship. That's what it's about. That's how it's loving to your neighbour, because you'd invite your neighbour around to come and join you. So that's the A, what's around? The C is what's the culture of the day? Now we look back and see a culture of hospitality among the Israelites. But that's partly due to commands like this, that encourage hospitality. Opening your home and sharing what you have. Really, it's an expression of the Eighth and Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not covet. Instead of stealing, we're sharing. Instead of coveting, we're caring. So the culture of the day actually was formed partly by this command. The K is a little bit strange. The K, what difference does King Jesus make? What difference does King Jesus make? Well, Jesus has fulfilled all the sacrifices. We saw that in earlier weeks. We no longer make fellowship offerings. But we are still to be generous and hospitable. The sacrifice may be gone, but the principle that lies behind this command stretches into the New Testament. So Romans 12, 13, it's on the back of your notice sheets. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the last letter in our um, mnemonic is why, the wacky, what is your culture? Or if you want it to be our culture, then it's wacko, isn't it? Um, What is our culture or your culture? We need to ask, what does hospitality look like in the 21st century? What might it look like in my circumstances? It might just be inviting someone round for a cup of tea. It might even be going out for a cup of tea if your house isn't your own. It might be having someone round for sandwiches rather than a three-course meal. It might be sharing this afternoon part of your sandwich with someone in fellowship lunch. Whatever it looks like, we are to do it. Too often we make a big deal of hospitality. We make it, oh, you've got to be sort of cordon bleu chef and have everything. And then make excuses why we can't do that. It doesn't have to be a three-course meal. It might just be a glass of Coca-Cola and a listening ear. But whatever it looks like, we're to do it. That's what this command is telling us. Do you see that God's word still speaks 
Actually, even with these old commands. So we need to be really careful that we go, oh, peace offering, yeah, that's nothing to do with us. Put it one side. How quickly would we have written it off? So we need to be careful, dig into these uh, laws. The passage goes on, verses 9 and 10 deal with a practice called gleaning, which was less about agriculture and more about care for the poor and the disadvantaged. There are rules against lying in verses 11 and 12. There are rules against uh, rules about treating workers fairly in verse 13. Don't get that wrong. Uh, rules about against being cruel to the disabled in verse 14. Laws against partiality in the law courts in verse 15. If you think about it, that this is supposed to be against what society was like in those days, it's painting a really bad picture of their society, isn't it? There's rules against slander in verse 16. Rules against hating your brother from the heart. In verse 17. Rules against bearing grudges in the first part of verse, of, of verse 18. Do you notice that those are quite internal? There's sometimes this myth that goes on that says the Old Testament was all external and the New Testament is all internal. Actually there's a mixture, isn't there? All are summed up with the second half of verse 18. Love your neighbour as yourself. This goes along with uh, what Jesus says. It goes along with loving God as well as Jesus said and Paul Both of them talked about this being a fulfilment of the law. So whatever we see with these commandments, love is always the guiding principle in our ethics. Always. So that's don't be like them in society. Don't be like them in their religious practices. Verse 19 does the same thing as the explicit commandments not to be like the nations around them. Have a look at verse 19. This is one that gets quoted quite a lot. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. This one always gets toted out by the sort of new atheists, don't they? So it's ridiculous. But actually, this is serving the same purpose as all the introductions to the sections. It's saying, don't be like them. The principle that they're being taught is not to mix their practices with the Canaanites and Egyptians. And actually, if you look through Israel's history, that's exactly what they did. That was the real danger for them. Often they didn't give up believing in God wholesale, but they did sort of pick and mix things all the way through. Remember, holiness throughout Leviticus has to do with being holy, W, holy one thing or another. The same principle is here. They're not to mix their practices with the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Half and half is not holiness. It's heathenism in disguise. So do not be like them in their religious practices. And it goes on with these commands. The next section would seem to be a section about the religious practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. The reason that it might not seem so much, because it seems like it covers all sorts of things, is that we forget how much in the ancient world was bound up with religion. So what do we discover about the Canaanites and the Egyptians from these passages? Well, they abuse their slaves. That's what we see in 20 to 22. That's a confusing law here in many ways. The thrust of it, though, is the protection of slaves. You couldn't be forced to commit adultery by your master and then punished for committing adultery. Slavery is a difficult issue in the Old Testament, but if you remember, most of these laws are there to protect slaves. After all, they've just been slaves in Egypt. Something else we learn about the Canaanites, they abuse the land, 23 to 25. 
The land is of real importance to the Lord all the way through this section. They're given rules to avoid abusing the land, implying that the Canaanites did. They eat blood. First part of 26. I'll refer you to last week on that and let you make up your own mind. They tell fortunes, second half of verse 26. But God is to be their guide, not clairvoyance or fortune tellers. Now here's the one we're going to focus on. They trim the sides of their heads. Verse 27, let me read it to you. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. This is another one that gets sort of toted out and sort of quoted as, you know, this is crazy. So let's, uh, let's do some work on this one. So remember W, wording. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Only a commandment for men, seemingly, beards are mentioned. Only specific haircuts are mentioned. There's a specific cut. It seems to be describing that it's not allowed for a man. What about around the passage? Well, there are religious rules around the passage. That should give us a bit of a clue as to what is going on. It's probably to do with religious practice. C, culture. Well, it turns out, if you look into Egyptian history, that Egyptian priests would have a sort of rounded circle on their heads. So if you think about, think like monks, they have that circle that's put out, yeah? They sort of had it the other way round. They cut everything else out and just have the circle. I don't know what they did if they were balding, but uh, yeah, I'd probably struggle to do that, I think. But that's what Egyptian priests had. It was a sort of sign of devotion to their god. So to have your hair cut like that was actually a religious statement, saying that you follow the Egyptian gods. K, King Jesus, what difference does he make? Well, I was quite surprised. I thought, oh, I won't have a lot to say really about the New Testament. But I've actually been quite surprised. The New Testament has quite a bit to say about haircuts, actually. Um, As we said before, it's a false distinction to say the Old Testament is exclusively external and the New Testament only internal. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10. uh, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and pearls or gold or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And then 1 Peter 3. Do not let your adorning be uh, external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, very precious. There's also a passage in 1 Corinthians, but I didn't want to make it even more complicated. (laughs) Ask me about it on a blue slip if you like. But what's this about? Well, it's worth thinking about the gods that our culture has now. So what about our culture, your culture? When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, there's a TV show I've not watched called American Gods. I don't know if you've watched it or come across it. But the idea is that basically the, it's got two sets of characters. Ones are the old gods of the world. So you've got Thor and Odin and, you know, all these sort of different gods from the past. And they're sort of being put out of business, so to speak, by new gods that are coming. The gods of technology and media and the market and globalization and fashion and drugs and individualism. And in the TV show, they're they're actual people that are worshipped by the world and they're growing in their importance while the old gods are sort of fading. 
And it got me thinking, actually, we do have gods in our age. There are religious practices, so to speak. So do we present our appearance in worship to any of these gods in the way that the Egyptians did? Does the god of fashion dictate our life? It dictates the lives of many, doesn't it? That's what they spend their money on, what they spend their time doing. What about the god of youthfulness? He's alive and well in churches up and down the land. We sort of focus on youth as being something positive. Does that affect the way that we do our hair? I mean, I've been tempted to dye my sideburns. Um, you might not believe it, but if you look, if you come up, oh, just, you know, surreptitiously look afterwards, you'll see that I am going grey on my sideburns. But it's not because, I've been tempted to dye it, not because I need to, or because Caroline wants me to, but there's something about looking young and trendy, isn't there, in our culture? That's, that's held up as being something, I haven't done it, but it's tempting. But are we actually following these gods in the way that we wear our hair? I know this sounds a random thing, but holiness covers the whole of life. Let me put it this way to you. If you spend more time doing your hair every day than reading your Bible or praying, might that be a clue that you're worshipping another god in your day-to-day life? Now, if we were in a country like Jamaica, this principle would express itself very differently. Because how you wear your hair in Jamaica, for example, still is a religious statement. So dreadlocks that you wear in Jamaica, they're uh, a religious requirement, a sign of a covenant between Yah and the Rasta. As a Christian in Jamaica, I would argue it would be unwise to have your hair in dreadlocks. In the UK, it's a fashion statement. In Jamaica, it's a religious statement again. I say this not because I think anyone's planning on moving to Jamaica. Okay, I think we're safe. Um, But it reminds us that over time and over the world, these principles look different in different cultures. So it's worth uh, thinking uh, about those things. We laugh at a command about hairstyles, but in Jamaica that would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it, to the readers? It's in part because our culture is further away that this sounds strange. But Old and New Testament, holiness has to do with the whole of our lives. Even our haircuts, even the way we wear our hair. Going back to the passage, there are similar uh, principles for cutting yourself for the dead and having tattoos. There are people who give their daughters to be prostitutes. Why would that be in a religious section? Well, most prostitution in the ancient world was linked to temples. In fact, the word for temple prostitutes in ancient Hebrew was holy girls. God is teaching them that this is not holy. This is not holiness. They're profaning what is holy in verse 30. As we've seen, that what went on in their temples was anything but holy. They used mediums in verse 31 to contact the dead. Again, God is to be their guide, not some person claiming that they're in touch with random dead people. They dishonor the old in 32. Not a new problem in our culture, as seemingly the young would prefer to the old. Especially in a culture that was obsessed with fertility and vitality. They defraud each other in verses 35 to 36. It was often the temple that the measures were set for different uh, weights and things. Fleecing people is not acceptable. It's not just business. It's holiness. And this section is summed up in 33 to 34. Love the stranger as yourself. Most of these things would involve people from outside Israel. Foreign practices, slaves from outside Israel, mediums from outside Israel... Isn't it fascinating that the command is to love them? 
We'd expect it in a way, wouldn't we, to be to hate them. But the Bible has no space for hating foreigners or people outside the church. That is not holiness, it's racism in the case of foreigners and prejudice in the case of outsiders. And both of those things are sinful. We are to love neighbours and strangers alike. But love does not mean we go along with all their practices. Love sometimes is refusing to go along with what someone else wants us to do. Love is not being a people pleaser. Sometimes we have to say no. Love equally is not being a rebel rouser, looking for reasons to be displeased. It's a tightrope that we walk. And nowhere perhaps more at the moment in our society than in our last section. Don't be like them sexually. Uh, chapter, verses 18, uh, chapter 18 and chapter 20. Now, if you just have a glance down chapter 18, you'll see that there's a list of commands of uh, people, family members, that you're not to go near and uncover their nakedness. So uh, verse 6 sums it up quite well. None of you shall approach any one of your close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And then it goes off to list all the specific relatives that you're not to do that with. Most of this section is uncontroversial in our society, saying don't sleep with your sister, don't sleep with your mother, don't sleep with your father, don't sleep with your aunt. But it would have been more controversial in Egypt and Canaan. So no sleeping with close relatives. Well, actually, pharaohs, they often married their sisters. And actually, the gods uh, slept with siblings as well. Baal, who you meet all the way through the, the Bible, the Canaanite god, slept with his sister and his mother and his daughter. And if you remember, we said that holiness often reflects the practice of the gods. And it means that actually in those countries, sleeping with close relatives was common practice. We also see other things in this passage that are not uh, were sort of used in, in the time. So verse 19 talks about no sex during periods, during um, menstruation. I looked that up this week. I did, I did more work probably than I'm giving you in, in terms of what's going on. It's not massively talked about in historical texts. But Egyptians treated menstrual blood as a sort of magic charm that could heal. So it's not unfeasible that the, one of the ways this was administered was by having sex with a woman during her period. It was sort of seen as something you could do for good luck or to help you with healing. They're told not to commit adultery in verse 20. Um, actually, it's written against in every culture in the world, pretty much adultery. But what was actually happening might be a different matter. No child sacrifice in verse 21. That was common with Baal worship. They've now found sites in North Africa and in uh, Palestine where they found the bodies of burnt dead children. Why is this in a section on sexual practice is a bit unclear. It's possible, though, that they sacrificed newborn babies as soon as they were born. Shocking, isn't it? And then we reach verse 22. No homosexual sex. I'm going to look at this one in more depth. I'm picking on this one not because in any way it's more serious or worse than the other ones, but it is one where our understanding will differ from the world around us. This is controversial in our time, but it would also have been controversial back then. In Egypt, Seth, the desert god, rapes his nephew slash brother, the sky god Horus, after getting him drunk. In Canaan, there was Sodom and Gomorrah, where male inhabitants tried to gang rape an angel in the form of a man. 
And people have said in the light of that that what has been spoken of is gay rape rather than gay sex. Or possibly male temple prostitution, which was common in Canaan. So when we reach a law that we think this is strange, this is weird, we're going to go through our mnemonic. So W, wording, what does it actually say? Have a look at verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is the abomination. The wording has nothing to do with rape or prostitution. If that were the case, it would read, do not rape a man as you would a woman, which wouldn't seem to make any sense. Or do not visit a male prostitute as you would visit a female prostitute. That again wouldn't work. The wording points us away from that interpretation. What's around it? Well, again, it's not laws about rape or prostitution. They do appear, but in other sections. It's in a section about consensual sexual practice. So that would imply that it's talking about where both parties are okay with it. What was the culture? That's the C. It varied from people to people. But in Canaan, it was certainly regarded as okay. And that means, actually, that this law is countercultural. It's not simply reflecting the culture of the time. Actually, it's saying something different, which again points us to the fact it probably is what it says. What difference does King Jesus make? That's the K. Well, the same is repeated in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we are not a nation in the same way that Israel were, and we're not to be imposing the penalties of chapter 20, because actually, in fact, the other thing that it says in the very next verse in uh, 1 Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What did Jesus do for gay people? He brought them into his kingdom. He washed and sanctified them. He died for them and paid the price for their sin with his own blood. So do not think for a second that this means that we should abuse, mistreat or be unkind to homosexuals. Remember, right at the heart of our passage, right in the middle of it, in the three chapters, right in the middle of it is love your neighbour. That's what this is about, loving our neighbour. But as we said before, loving doesn't always mean just going along with whatever they say. We must acknowledge that the Bible teaches clearly that homosexual practice is wrong. To be attracted to a member of the same sex is not wrong. All of us face temptations It's what we do with our temptations. We're not to judge people for what temptations they face. But to have sex with someone of the same sex, the Bible would argue is wrong. So what about our culture or your culture? It means that we acknowledge gay sex is wrong, but we love our neighbour. I don't think the way that some people go about this issue is very loving picketing funerals, making homophobic jokes. It just isn't appropriate, and it never should have been, even when society was different and thought different about this issue. I think that many Christians fell foul to a culture that ridiculed homosexuals and joined in. 
But to persecute our neighbour is not to love them. And we need to work out what that means with our own friends and neighbours. As we oppose the practice, but we love them. If you've got any more questions on that, I've done a talk of that on a Sunday evening. Uh, If you chat to me afterwards, I'll give you the website to look at. But the chapter finishes off in verse 23 with sex with animals. It's wrong for men and women. In Egyptian culture, it was common practice. Ramesses II, probably the pharaoh who uh, claimed it was alive during the Exodus, claimed to have been fathered by a goat or a god in goat form. So it's quite common in those days, less common now. Chapter 20 deals with what to do if anyone breaks any of these laws. Effectively, it says this. Anyone who is like them, anyone who is bringing in their practices, you're to deal with them. The Israelites were to be a nation that was different from those around them. God's own people. Those who sought to take them back to Egypt or to make them like the Canaanites were to be punished severely. Or if somebody saw someone doing this and didn't do anything, they were also to be punished. The sad thing in history is not that Israel applied these laws in their history, it's that they ignored them. In fact, they ended up just like them. Again and again in the Bible we see the Israelites not being holy, but just acting like the nations around them. 2 Kings 21 even talks about Israel being worse than the nations that they drove out. Ezekiel 30 talks about them sacrificing their children to idols, just like the Canaanites. So what lessons are we to draw from this, all this, to all together? Don't be like them. Have a look at the end of, uh, verse, of chapter 20, 22 to 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate clean birds from unclean, um, sorry, unclean beasts from unclean, unclean bird from clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by bird or beast, by anything which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Remember that these rules were not there so that Israel could moan about the state of Canaan. They were there for the Israelites to, uh, they weren't there even for them to teach the Canaanites what to do. They were there so that the Israelites would be forewarned and live differently to the world around them. Just as the clean and unclean animals were to be distinct from one another, they were to be distinct from the world around them. They were to be gods and not their own. And brothers and sisters, this is no different for us, is it? This is not there for us to moan about the world around us. This is a chance for us to live differently, to show a better way. If the world around us is dark... Remember that if we live according to his word, we'll shine even more brightly. So this passage is not there for us to put on placards. It's there for us to examine our own hearts. We can't just write off these laws as irrelevant. 
The question is not whether they apply, but how they apply to us now in the 21st century. We need to examine our culture and think through what these look like now. So how are we to not be like them? But we must remember the bigger context. Doing these things will not save us, will not put us in a right relationship with God. In Galatians 3, it quotes this passage from Leviticus and says, The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. But the point being in that passage that none of us do them. None of us keep them. If we could do these perfectly, we could theoretically live by them, be saved by them. But we can't. No one can. So we remember in all this that we're saved by faith, not works. We trust in Christ's sacrifice, not in rule keeping. And when we fail at doing these things, there is forgiveness on offer. And there's always more. I imagine this morning with our large loaf, there'll be quite a bit left over. Do you know what? That's a great, great picture, isn't it? That actually there's always more. There's always more forgiveness on offer. Whatever we do, there's always more of Christ. So what is holiness? Well, holiness is not the means to a relationship with God. It's the result of a relationship with God. It means that slowly over time, as we are devoted to serve our God, we become like the God we serve, understanding him through his word and serving him by living out what we find. Let's pray. Father God, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to remember that we're not saved by doing these things. But Father, help us to uh, live to please you. Father, help us to know what these commands mean. Father, we confess that some of them are very confusing. Father, help us as we do that work of using the minds that you've given us to help us understand the implications for these today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.